Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I am joined by someone whose phone is beeping. I'm not sure if that is Heidi White or Tim McIntosh. I'm going to go with Tim. Is it Tim? It's not me. Oh, it's Heidi. Podcast fail. Didn't put my phone on silent. (laughs) Well, what timing? Anyway, so how's it going, Heidi? Are you first since you were hogging the mic there with your phone? Seriously, just like attention seeking Heidi White. I'm doing (laughs) great, David. How are you? I'm great. Tim, what about you? Doing great. Great. Terrific. The tops. The tops of the peaks? (laughs) Yeah, at the peaks. Metaphorically speaking. Uh huh. Right. Well, we are here to discuss. Other people also getting to the top of metaphorical mountains. We are here to discuss, and literal mountains, I suppose. We are here to discuss the Odyssey. We're going to discuss books uh, 21 and 22. This is our, well, I was going to say it's our penultimate episode. If you include the Q&A episode, it's not the penultimate episode. But it's the penultimate conversation of the book itself prior to discussing the book based on the questions of our audience. If you stayed with me, then... That was complex. You're smarter like than I am. chronology mm-hmm. of the Odyssey. Well done. <laughs> exactly. So we are here to discuss uh, books 21 and 22. We'll do that in just a second. Don't forget about all the uh, ways that you can follow us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can join the conversation on Facebook in the Close Reads Podcast discussion group by searching Close Reads on Facebook. And you can, of course, send us emails at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And you can post your questions about the Odyssey on Facebook. We started a thread for that. That's been tagged at the top of the Facebook page. So if you have something you want us to talk about, you can post that there or you can email it to us at the aforementioned email address. Don't forget also about Patreon. We have a new bonus episode going up probably this weekend. We are going to be discussing Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Young Goodman Brown. And then each month, we'll be posting a bonus episode about a different short story. So if you want to get access to that, as well as various show swag, sweet show swag, a very difficult thing to say quickly, you can uh, go over to patreon.com slash close reads to join that as well. Tim, can you say sweet show swag three times sweet fast? Sweet show swag. Sweet sh- <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> I, it took me two and I failed. Heidi, what about you? You got to do it too. Sweet show swag. I just said it once. Does that? No, that doesn't count. I said it once, Sweet Heidi. show swag. Sweet show swag. Sweet show swag. I got it. But I didn't did say it fast. And you also got the, the benefit of hearing Tim struggle with it first. So, I mean, I don't want to belittle your accomplishment, but nonetheless. <laughs> but um, it was small. It was smaller than had Tim accomplished his task. <laughs> Yeah, I had a little bit more practice just like mouthing it for a couple extra seconds for waiting for you to call in on me. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's let's get past this and uh, discuss books 21 and 22 of the Odyssey. Um, books 21 and 22 are, in many ways, in my mind, the sort of... Um, the conclusion of the action before 23 and 24 are a sort of epilogue of sorts. And so we get in 20, 21 and 22... We get the stringing of the bows and we get the archery contest. And then we also get the great bloody battle. So let's talk about these things. Heidi, I want to ask you this question because this is going to come across as sexist. (laughs) I can't wait. No. Um, (laughs) So I was reading something about teachers who were teaching the Odyssey and they were breaking down responses of their students to the two sort of endings to this book. And it was kind of, it kind of fell on, on like, you know, the sort of 
traditional gender, the things you'd think of stereotypically. The girls don't love the battle and all the blood and all the descriptions of that. The boys love it. Once that's over, the boys don't care so much about the reunion of Odysseus and Penelope, but the girls like that. Do you think that that... We'll ask you this. before Before I go into my try to sort of trying to interpret if that's actually a real thing or what that means, do you feel that way as a woman? Like, do you just want to get past the battle and then get into the you know, the romantic conclusion? No, not even a little bit. I glory in the moment when he jumps on the table. <laughs> I, I love it. Love it. Because it's this moment of redemption when he is, he's saving the land. He's saving the day. He's a true hero. Uh, but there is a lot of blood and gore. Um, and I, adore also the reunion between Odysseus and Penelope. I think it appeals, I I think it says a lot about the book that it appeals to both that kind of traditional masculine stereotype and traditional feminine stereotype and how it's all one conclusion, one reconciliation, one climactic moment of redemption. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I said it's stereotypical. I suspect that when whoever was writing that was writing it, they were, you know, they were recognizing that individual students are going to respond to it in different ways on, you know, for either, either gender. Um, Tim, have you in teaching this with college students, have you noticed any kind of trends as far as that? Or is it, or do you think that generally speaking, the students you were dealt with, dealt with, I say like they're a problem that you got (laughs) to experience teaching responded more like what Heidi were, you know, where she, glories and him jumping onto the table, which we have to talk about. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't notice. I didn't notice a difference. I didn't know it kind of like lining up according to gendered stereotypes, but I don't know that I was listening for that either. So my data might be inconclusive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on it. I was just curious because I was reading this thing that was saying that their experience was that they were having a hard time as a teacher keeping boys as interested once the battle's over, you know? And so then they were trying to figure out, well, how do I get them interested? Yeah. So I don't really want to talk about that too much. It was more of, let's, I was just kind of curious to see if this was something that would be It makes sense that that would be an issue. I, I, I think if I was having just kind of substitute taught for sixth, seventh and eighth graders, I can totally imagine the guys in this, that class being like, Chapter 22 is the best chapter. I've been waiting for 22 the whole time. And then 23 is like, uh, more talk. You know, I can imagine that. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Princess Bride scene where the kid's like, more kissing. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get back to the sword fighting? Right. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about, let's talk about um, what these these scenes mean because Heidi, you mentioned this, this is the scene where he jumps up on the table and you said that you glory in that. And you mentioned the word redemption. And I mentioned last week that I wanted to talk about um, the concept of revenge, I guess Um, revenge versus um, uh, what justice, I guess is, yeah, I think justice was what I was talking about because I was thinking a lot about, I mean, I think this, you know, if you want to talk about having your students write a paper about decisions that characters make and whether they should have done them, book 22 of the Odyssey is an all-time great for that. Because the series of decisions that Odysseus and Telemachus make are so dramatic in their implications and, and in their ramifications 
and they're so extreme to an extent that that the that the discussing whether Odysseus and Telemachus should have, you know, brought down the hammer as hard as they did, so to speak, is I think um is that is I think an interesting conversation. So I was I was thinking a lot while I was reading about whether they went too far and whether it's just a revenge story. You know, like are they just like to what extent when does revenge get out of hand, I guess is what I was thinking about. Um so you talked about redemption though. So how can you talk a little bit more about what you mean? Like if we're talking, if the words we've got here are revenge, justice, and now redemption, how does the redemption part of this play out for you? Sure. It's a good question. The, uh, the meaning of to redeem something is to buy something back right from someplace else. Right. So when I talk about redemption, in some ways I'm meaning it in that, um, simple sense of Odysseus comes back and he buys back his land, his wife, his son, his people, his wealth uh, from these plunderers. He he takes it back. He redeems it, and so uh, and in the wake of that, he also. Um, takes revenge and uh, at least on the terms of the story, it's a completely just action. There is, I don't think, a question within the story on whether or not Odysseus is doing the right thing here. In fact, the book before that we talked about last week um, in book 20, he is tormented by it. He's asking the question, is this just? Am I going to be punished by the gods? And Athena comes and assures him, no, no, no. Their fate is to die at your hand. And so you know, kind of go for it. She gives him permission and tells the, tells him that what he's doing is justified. So at least on the terms of the story, I, I, he absolutely is doing something just here. I was thinking about that scene quite a bit because I was, because I, I agree with you, except to the point that you have to trust the gods then. Like the gods, even if you look at it within the context of the story itself, like what the story is giving us within that framework, you still have to accept then that the gods are in some ways like caretakers of some kind of moral universe for that to be meaningful, don't you? In pleasing one god, you could displease another, which is the whole dilemma that Odysseus has, right? He has the protectress in Athena, but he has an enemy in Poseidon. And so um, there, there is a sense in which the moral ground on which any character does make a decision is fairly shaky. But there's also the sense in which we can't um, use the Christian ethic to judge Odysseus's actions here and still be true to the story. Uh, and so what we have is Odysseus jumping up on the table. I think it's this very satisfying moment, but I do know it can be distasteful, um, particular since we, particularly since we know that at least one of the suitors was inherently a good man, um, and that we've explored in earlier podcasts. And so this moment, to me, feels very satisfying and rewarding, uh, but there are some readers who are, yeah, some readers who don't like it, who think it's too bloody. And as Wilson points out in her translator's notes, there perhaps there are some ways in which Telemachus and Odysseus go too far. All right, Tim, jump in. You're kind of nodding over there, thinking well, pensively. Well, I was, I was thinking about the way that they go too far. I suspect what Heidi's thinking about is um, 
the servant girls. Am I mm-hmm. right? What happens to the servant girls, Heidi? And Melanthius. Yeah. Yes. But to go back to the whole question of revenge, I think one thing that's important for readers to keep in mind is that we are in a pagan justice is still in that kind of pagan revenge cycle vision of justice, which means I think one of the biggest advancements in human civilization is the development of third party arbiters between violent parties or warring parties or distributing parties. So meaning um, if someone, you know, bashes in my car window, I can take it to a third party, which is the police system. You have to go bash in his head. Yeah. 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 Whereas yeah. In a revenge cycle, the way that I get justice is to do the same thing to the person who did to me. So I would go bash in his window or something that I thought was equivalent. But what if I go too far? Um, what if I injure, you know, someone that he loves and he's going to come at me to revenge to like take revenge over me overstepping my revenge and then I'm going to return. So it's really quick. You can see how rapidly something like a cycle of undying revenge just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And soon a generation has passed and no one remembers how it all started. No one remembers that somebody bashed in somebody else's window. That's actually completely beside the point because now families are involved. And so we can see when we get to the end of the book, which I won't go to yet, we can see that's exactly the dilemma that's going to face Odysseus, Telemachus, and his household. They have revenged the wrong done to them. But does that mean the revenge cycle is over? No. In fact, the revenge cycle is potentially just beginning if we don't have a God step in and say, enough is enough, that's the end. Which, to give everybody a little hint, that's what ends up happening. But even there, it's like the God who is his protectress doesn't do that until Zeus says, come on, it's time. Yeah. You know? And like, and in a way, it, there's an arbitrariness to when it ends. Yeah. Like it doesn't end because, because, there, because of some kind of merit. Right. Right. Or a decision that a character makes. Right. Like, you know, you, you know, maybe, the, maybe, maybe there's a code to what's going on, you know, to, to what's expected of these guys. Right. Yeah. Um, but but the, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, go, 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 go. Well, the killing of the servant girls and even the torture of Melanthus, which that's the one I, I struggle with when I read it. Um, with those, there is less a sense of vengeance coming through the story that the tone has shifted. It's gone from this triumphant moment of redeeming back the land uh, to a, a, a kind of a cool collected, now we have to take care of the loose ends. Like Odysseus is cleansing at this point. The, he brings the servant girls in to clean the area of slaughter and then they're killed. So clearly the connection is they are being cleansed as well, just as the floors and the walls 
uh, are the blood stains are being washed away. So are these blots upon the land because they have been uh, unfaithful and they have betrayed their mistress and they have not waited for their Lord. So there is almost this um, same sense that you get in the fabe or the parable of Christ about the lamps. Like who has been, which of the virgins has saved the oil, which has waited for the bridegroom to return and been faithful and stewarded well the resources of the kingdom, those will be rewarded, whereas the others will not only, they won't just be marginalized or fired or cast aside, but they're going to be cast into outer darkness. They need, the land must be cleansed of these blots upon it. And that's the sense that you get the killing of the servant girls and of Melanthius. It does feel a lot more, it does feel, to your point, Heidi, that it changes from being about justice to being about purity. Right. At some point, I think, I think after most of the suitors are done away with, yeah, when Odysseus starts fumigating the house, you're like, gosh, was that, net? why is he doing that? It does seem like it's because it's about just removing all of the impurities that were left over from both the kind of like memory of the suitors, but also of the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Right. They have come, the suitors had come and corrupted the land. And now all of the impurity that they brought with them must be cleansed and done away with and gotten rid of in order to make a clean start in Ithaca with the rightful man on the throne. And he won't even see his wife until it's all done. Yeah. And so there is a sense of order to it uh, um, and and tradition to it. There's a, a weight to it that's solemn and cool and collected and very different than that triumphant moment of slaughter in which he's uh, implementing justice upon these wicked men. Yeah. I had forgotten you guys that he tears off his rags and does the fighting naked. Uh-huh. I completely forgot about that. Until he gets the armor that. on. <laughs> Until he gets the armor on, yeah. But isn't there, it, 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 I read it as there's something going on there. It's not just that he wanted to kind of like show himself to the suitors. It is revealed, I am Odysseus. But I think there's also, I, I don't know exactly how to read it, but there was something kind of, um, I don't know, sort of, primal in like just going completely naked into it like like it's an olympic race like we're going to take off all of our clothes and we're going to compete naked i'm also going to do like the revenge moment just yeah completely shed of anything well we get the um that uh epic simile which is brought Uh up twice where it refers to him as a lion. After a lion eats a grazing ox, its right. chest and jowls are thick with blood all over. Mm-hmm. A dreadful sight. Just so Odysseus had blood all over him from hands to feet. Um, and uh, so, so the, the primalness is, is... That's a good word. Primal, I think, is, is, is definitely... That's the picture we're as getting. As good a way to describe, to describe it as anything. Yeah. So, is it just, though... Seen about, I've seen a lot about justice, and then I get to that line, actually right after what I read. It's in 4.14 in book 22. And um, the... Who, who is it? Let's see. The, um, 
the old woman, you're oh, it's your Clea. Your Clea, um, be, she, it begins to crow. She said, "It says she begins to crow." It says, and then it says Odysseus told her to stop and spoke with fluent words. Um, it is not pious gloating over men who have been killed. And then it says divine fate took them down and their own wicked deeds. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that, that, that sentence that troubles you, David. That sentence is illogical. <laughs> How come? Because divine fate took them down and their own wicked deeds mm. are not the same thing. Mm. They cannot be mutually exclusive. I mean, they are they mutually are exclusive. Mutually exclusive. Yeah. They yeah. cannot happen at the same time because divine fate, if divine, divine fate is what takes them down, the whole, the whole the book has been consumed with this question about what the gods make people do and why, right? We've talked about it a lot. If divine fate is what takes them down, then they are made to do their wicked deeds by the gods. And we see Athena meddling throughout, right? And so if it's divine fate that takes them down, then, then there's an order of... An order of um, an order of operations here. And so then that's where the question of justice comes into me. Because if the gods made them do it, so the gods made them do it, and then based on what they did, sure, it is just for them to be destroyed for the things they did. But if the gods made them do it, in part to make Odysseus look more powerful or whatever, or for whatever reasons, then it's not just what happened to them. And it it doesn't mean that Odysseus did the unjust thing, but it certainly means that the gods did the unjust thing, which might just mean that they live in an unjust universe, which is fine. But you know, even within the context of the book, I, th- I think there's a case to be made that there is that the book is offering us something more complex about the pagan vision of justice. Hmm. Um, and I think I, primarily, I, I in, agree, David. And go ahead, I, go I think ahead. like we're to get into like we've wrestled with this whole question of like pagan theology, and and I'm reluctant to to like try to iron it all out because I don't know that that the Greeks had it ironed all out. But I do think there's something <laughs> going on. Because like, one thing about people is that we always have our, our uh, theologies ironed out perfectly. Ironed out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, honestly, I don't think that they did. I think that they, I mean, the Middle Ages of Christendom, there's just such a drive to articulate fine points and broad points of um, how God interacts with the world, how he redeems his people, whatever. And we are the beneficiaries of that long, robust tradition. And I, it's not like the Greeks didn't yeah. care about theology. They most certainly did. But I, I don't know that there's a comparable time of the medieval world in, in like Greek pagan theology. I think they, well, you know, I think like Homer is about as like, robust like they, did, they didn't feel like they needed to create like systematize what they believe yeah right 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 right. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because if you look at the difference even like even today between say christianity in the east and christianity in the west whether it's say the actual eastern orthodox church or not the there is a big difference in in the sort of priority of systematization of of theological points. Like in the East, there's not this sort of ingrained need to express your faith in a systematic way. Yeah. Whereas in the West, that's like the default, one of the defining characteristics of Western Christianity. You know, if you can't do that, the, the, the idea is, then that's a problem, right? If you can't elucidate clearly 
for yourself and for other people what you what you believe, then do you really believe it? But that's not even a that's like a it's a completely different way of thinking about things than even they think about in the East now. And so that's not even what you're describing there. I think is still something that's that's uh, you know a conceptual difference that exists now, not just between us and three seven centuries ago or whatever. It's like a temperamental right. difference between, Could be, the, yeah. between yeah. the East and the West. There's this famous, like we're totally like rabbit trailing here, but while we're at it, there's this famous sentence in Charles Hodge's systematic theology. So late 19th century Princeton theologian, um, he wrote this big, huge systematic theology. And in the foreword, I believe he writes something like, the purpose of my systematic theology is to extract the doctrines and to put them in their proper order, which sounds kind of innocent enough, except for you're like, okay, so you have to extract them from the narrative in order to put them in their proper order. So the narrative in which they're like come to us through like the scriptures, does that mean that that's the improper order? But anyway, that's a digression. (laughs) Well, it's an important digression, though, because later Greek philosophy, which is centuries after Homer, and really that's really important to remember, uh, that that Greek philosophy made a distinction between the logos or the the um, and the the nature of a thing, something that could be expressed in. Uh, when Socrates is talking about it in this sense, he's talking about uh, propositional truth. And the mythos, which is the stories in which that truth is embodied or expressed, right? So Homer has the mythos, and it's, in a sense, improper and unfaithful to the text to try to make a logos out of it. Yeah, It's not there. So, like yeah. they're, it's, they're telling a story. Greek theology, pagan theology, uh, which in some ways is a contradiction in terms even to use that phrase, but I know why we're using it. But mm-hmm. they wouldn't have even thought of systematizing something that was so chaotic and unpredictable. There so, is no way to know the will of the gods unless they reveal themselves directly to you. You could have displeased one and pleased another. They are capricious. So that the, this idea of systematizing something that is completely chaotic would never have occurred to homeric greeks well okay so let me clarify what i guess what i'm getting at here i'm not suggesting that 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 homer is was trying to or did systematize the ideas that i'm talking about here but i so what i'm i guess what i'm just saying is that there is embedded in the story more complexity than that than the sort of simple concept that what odysseus chose to do was was definitely right Right. And I knew that's what you were getting at. And I think you're exactly right. And I think to your point about these phrases, or excuse me, these clauses in the sentence being mutually exclusive, I think the the Greeks would have been like, well, yeah, I don't know what the heck is going on. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) I totally totally agree. I think that the, I have a feeling that a, a Homeric era Greek hearing this, you know, from the mouth of Homer would kind of hear that line that David read. And it is like, it's a really confusing line. And I think he kind of would have shrugged or something like that. You know, let's get back to the action. However, I'm going to attempt to kind of say, I think that my sense of what's going on in that passage that you read, David, is that there's 
two things are constantly being acknowledged in Homer. One is that the gods are capricious, that they fight with each other. They're going to do whatever they want to with us. And then the other sense is we have to respect them because what the gods want is the way that we ought to live and they deserve, um, you know, worship and glory. I, I think in Homer's time, what's beginning to happen is there's this sense something lies behind the the gods. There's something sort of like grander and more unified behind this infighting and squabbling and confusion amongst the gods. And I think it's something like like what we would call destiny or fate. And I think it operates, it, I think it operates like gravity operates, but it's a moral sort of gravity. Um, that if you don't do certain things or behave in a certain way, if you act without hospitality, the gravity of the moral, that moral capital D destiny is going to pull you down and you are going to suffer and your house is going to suffer and your loved ones are going to suffer and you're never going to be wealthy because you're violating this sort of like divine sense of gravity. That's the best that I can do. Again, I don't want to like put too much onto it because I don't think that it's all ironed out in any sort of like scholastic sense. But I think that that, that kind of like feeling of destiny lies behind the infighting of the gods. I think that will begin to be sort of like pulled out and isolated in the time of classical Athens. And so you get Pythagoras saying, yeah, that one, that destiny behind the gods or that, that one unifying thing, it's number. Or for Heraclitus, he's going to say something like, it's atoms. Or for other philosophers, they're going to try to isolate it, say it's water, it's fire. They're going to try to like name the thing that lies behind all the other things that are passable and malleable. And that's going to ha- start to happen in what, three, 400 years, something like that. But right now, it's just a big kind of theological salad. It's a metaphysical salad. How is that different than now? (laughs) Maybe it's not. Charles Hodge would say it's not. Charles Hodge got it worked (laughs) out. Um, where were we? We well, it's (laughs) we're we're in book twenty-two in the those lines that you read about divine fate and their own wicked deeds. But this conversation that we're having is not a rabbit trail. It's entirely relevant to the original question that guided this conversation, which is, is this revenge? Is it justice? Which of these actions are justified and which are not? Um, and, and that all comes down to this thing that we're talking about, which is the will of the gods and the agency of man and how confusing it is, how those two streams of or that catalyze human action and results on earth, how those things relate is a huge question, as you pointed out earlier, David, a huge question in Homer. This is explored in a myriad of ways in the epics. Uh, what does it mean that Athena helps Odysseus, but Poseidon is against him? And, uh, you know, in the Iliad, it's even more pressing with the the choice that Achilles has to make. And um, so th- it, 
is very relevant, but the fact that nothing is systematized, nothing is written down, we don't have some kind of cohesive philosophy because chaos undergirds everything, always leads us back to the particular events that and choices that people have to face. Like, what does Odysseus do about the suitors? What does he do about these women who are in his household who have been sleeping with the suitors and betraying his wife? Like, so it's, it's less a question for Odysseus of what are the overarching concepts of justice and mercy and how do those things play out and what verse can I look up and can I go talk to my priest? And you know what I mean? Like that's, I talk to people, have them pray for me. There's none of that. There's nothing like that existing for him. There is just this particular choice with these particular gods and these particular circumstances, and he's going to do the best he can. That's it. So what does that mean? <laughs> I guess that means then we have a great story, right? That thousands of years later, everybody's still, well, everybody who's paying attention is still reading and saying, what do I think about what Odysseus did? There are certain things I can gather about the cultural context, but this is the the Greek concept of um, of, of fate and free will is unresolved as it is probably in every generation with every sense of belief system, because there's multiple answers to that question within Christian tradition too. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's one answer. There's one capital A answer, but there's multiple speculations yeah. about how that plays out. Yeah. Is revenge a neutral word? Oh, that's such a good question. Is it? A so we've n- talked at length, at length over the years about the concept of question. ambition, right? Ambition, yes. <laughs> Um, so I'm not to open that can of words again. We'll stay away from that can of can of words. See what I did there? Um, but uh, the, but um, is revenge a neutral concept? Like it, we talked. So some people believe um, ambition is a is always a negative thing. Some people say it depends on what it's geared towards. Is revenge the same thing? Like is re, is revenge either always a negative thing, or does it depend on what it's geared towards? I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm it it's kind of turning one of my uh it's it's causing me to question one of my uh core opinions about stuff. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, have David? a lot of follow-up questions. Yeah, right. Just, uh, so. <laughs> well, mainly it's making me question whether I should um <laughs> no, I was going to make a John Wick joke, but I have a feeling that not enough of our audience has watched the John Wick movies. Um, well, okay. So what do you guys think about this? How do you go ahead? Um, Are you going well, to ask me questions? My, about- I, was raising, he, you're, he's, I was raising my hand to say, I have, like many in the audience, have not seen the John Wick movies, but I have watched a lot of revenge movies. And um, so I'm an expert in this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do think of revenge negatively, but right away, I think justice is good. Revenge is bad. And so we have to discern Mm -hmm. which one we're doing. It's a dichotomy, one or the other. Now, that's how I think about it. I'm very willing to be convinced that I'm Mm -hmm. wrong and I've been thinking about it wrongly. But that's just my first answer. You can either take revenge on somebody and revenge is sort of a it's a suggestion of sort of bloodthirstiness or, or it's just, just negative correlation to that connotation. Justice is or, the other side of the coin yes. where you are righting a wrong that has been committed. Yes. And maybe the actions are the same, like with 
with Odysseus. You mean the thing that you do? It's the it same might be revenge. It might, yeah, it might be the, okay. Yeah. Yes, it's but it's either an act of vengeance, <clears throat> which is bad and not morally justified, or it's an act of justice so, that can be that is morally justified. If the so, same but, action could be either good or bad, then justified right. or not, what is the thing that distinguishes? the good or badness about the action by it seems like by definition right. then it would have to be the circumstances in which the action is committed but then if two different people commit the same action in the same circumstance could the differences could it could it be like if tim and i both take like if tim does something and it's considered vengeance and i do it and it's considered justice can can that be true if, if the circumstance is the same but it's tim doing it versus me doing it Right. It's a really good question. And in saying what I just said out loud, I hear the inconsistency in my argument. That's, I, we're thinking out loud on a podcast right now. So, exactly. I'm I'm with you, Heidi. I think, and I think it's more than just circumstance. I think it's also the big issue, I think, is motive. So, meaning, um, let me see if I can tease this out. I watched this, there's this really great multi part, um, OJ miniseries about you know the trial OJ, of OJ Simpson. OJ made in America. Yeah, it, but it's the documentary. It's not the movie. It's not the the miniseries movie. It's the documentary. Yeah, they're and both great, by the way. They're both really good. And one thing that I kind of walked away with is I kept thinking about Ronald Goldman's father. So just Ronald mm-hmm. Goldman was one of the people that was killed along with OJ's ex-wife and of course it's believed and i think it was oj um you know all the talk is about oj's ex-wife but there's this other person ronald goldman who was also killed brutally killed so when oj is pronounced not guilty ronald goldman's father is as any father would be like so distressed he's so heartbroken and he is so angry he did not get justice for his son but there's something that happens in the course of this documentary that really made me feel like and i'm not judging the man because i don't know how anybody would respond in that situation but there's there's part of me that thought raul goldman's father it feels like he wants revenge against oj more than he wants justice and, and and it felt like his like he was becoming like polluted in his desire in this way and i and i do think that there is i think all the circumstances between someone seeking justice and someone seeking revenge i think all the circumstances could look the exact same but i do think that there's something about a motive for justice which is I'm going to use this word kind of cautiously. It's it's a little bit narcissistic in that it seems like it it's it demands that like the self be satisfied, not that justice be met. And I also think that the deed in, within the world of Homer, I think that the deed the kind of symmetry of justice of the error done against him, the errors done against him. Most of right. us don't get to seek justice because we're not the ones. If someone bashes in my car window, I'm not the one who gets to go. I ought not be the one who goes to bash in the guy's, you know, car window. I instead go to a third party and ask for justice. 
because of the cultural constructs that we've created, right? Yeah. Right. Would it be For more the- justice though if you if you I mean like would it be inherently more just if you were to resolve the situation? <laughs> As opposed to the lawyer? <laughs> Such a good question because like we, we've watched courtroom dramas, right? I mean, people like courtroom dramas, but there is n- it is not the same feeling when the jury says guilty as it is when Odysseus jumps on the table and kills the suitors. It is not the same rewarding, satisfying feeling because the thing that we see with Odysseus is, to your point, that you just... Well, you didn't make a point, but you asked a question that was a really good question that would it be more just if Tim was to revenge, I, revenge, avenge, avenge, avenge yeah. the, yes, the harm done to his car window. Uh, and so, yeah, look after your car windows. <laughs> yeah, right. They're really important. Like it gets cold. It's winter <laughs> is coming. So, <laughs> this is. Every man is out a car window. It's, it's complex. And I think once you add in the layer of what, what makes a good story, it becomes even more complex because I think revenge dramas are very, very good stories, like extremely satisfying stories. That they're, yeah, like that, in an Aristotelian sense. Yes. Yeah. You, and there's this catharsis of like, Odysseus has to be the one to kill the suitors. Mm-hmm. It's not, it wouldn't be the same if Athena did it for him. For all we hide behind the divine fate thing, right? but there was the fate of the gods put on them. And so it wasn't revenge, it was justice. But if Athena did it, it wouldn't. I'd be like, all of that, we read 21 books and Athena did it. So I'm not sure I even believe what I said before about whether or not I conflate justice and revenge. Maybe I do. <laughs> Why do you have doubts now, Heidi? Because I'm talking out loud, <laughs> saying stuff that people are going to listen to. <laughs> and you want to like, co- cover your bases? Well, I think it's more that I'm hearing. I, I'm hearing You're myself thinking. say, I'm thinking, yeah, it's a dialectic, right? I'm hearing myself say justice is good and revenge is bad, but I know how good it feels to read about Odysseus jumping on the table and avenging. Well, but maybe that, maybe the fact that that it feels so good is, is the whole point of why a third party in our, in our civilization is the, is, are, is, are the ones who, create resolution to a conflict that that because it feels so good the pursuit of it is you know is is um is that's what makes it problematic because we're so sort of emotionally invested in it like not necessarily in the story but the people who have been wronged are so emotionally invested in it that they lose sight of the proper degree of of justice that's where i think it gets that's where we get in here it's not wrong that that they be punished. It's not wrong that it maybe even it's not wrong that some of them die. It's not wrong that things be set right, but it's a matter of degree, right? Was the right. degree to which they took action just, or was it right. just revenge? Like it's clear that there is a degree of justice being enacted, but is there a point at which it goes beyond justice and suddenly becomes unjust? Like that they are then perpetrating something that is unjust. I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about the the, the slave girls is um, that it shifts from Odysseus as the actor to Telemachus. Mm. And Odysseus has not at that point decided what to do. And it says that Telemachus took, he took an initiative. 
you know, it's, he feels like it's his turn to act. And, and it, do, it doesn't make clear, in my opinion, what, at least in this translation, whether he is acting purely out of rage and he's just so angry or whether he's being more calculated about it. You know, like if this was being made into a movie, I could see it being something that for the sake of storytelling, you have Telemachus talking about wanting to do to these slave girls. You know, he wants to destroy them in some kind of gruesome way. Or like you, ha- you, could, you could build up to that. But here it, there's this sense that it's not Odysseus taking action anymore. It's Telemachus takes that out of his hand. He takes initiative. And then at, at that point, has he gone one step farther than Odysseus would have gone. Because in my opinion, at least, and I may have misread this, it's not clear how Odysseus judges that action that Telemachus takes one way or the other. Yeah, we don't get anything on that, do we? From Odysseus, from the text. Because then it says that the guys, it says the men tortured Melanthius or whatever. And then after that, Odysseus tells Eurycleia she can go get Penelope now, I think. I think that's the order. I just think that's interesting that there is no assessment of the action that Telemachus takes there. And from, right. from, from the narr- narrative or from the characters. That, that aspect of these two aspects that, that we were talking about, these are the most troubling aspects of the whole Odyssey. I mean, you know, right. Odysseus's sexual impropriety with Calypso and Circe, okay, you can kind of like give an explanation to it. Um, this one, though, is really troubling. And I, and I don't know... I don't know if it really meets the kind of symmetry called for in revenge justice in Homer's world. It seems like it's stepping over, but I'm not a Greek. I'm not, I'm not a Homeric Greek living in that time. Maybe they would have heard that and said, well, yeah, you got it. The servant girls have got to go. They're the worst of all. Maybe. Right. That might be the, yeah, it, it makes seems- the, of course the suitors came to try to win her and they thought he was dead, but the, but the, they weren't betraying their master the way the servants were. Right. So yeah, there's a, I can, yeah, I can see that, that, that case. Because from our perspective here, it's hard to justify. It's, it's really hard to say, um, from our perspective in the 21st century, I'd say it's impossible, but I think even from the 21st century, looking back at Homer's time, um, it's really hard to find, gosh, what is it about the kind of code of that day that would call this justified? And I think that code is probably out there. Um, and I just think it's, it's kind of easy, at least for me, to point back at that code. If that code said it's okay to do these two grotesque revenge acts after the suitors have been killed, it's fairly easy for me to say, yeah, that code's pretty messed up. On that issue, that code is really messed up. It's like there's other like, great things about it. But, oh, man, the hang of the servant girls. To, to fulfill what it seems like primarily a, a purity drive. Right. It is a purity drive. And they have... Uh, Emily Wilson does address this very issue in the introduction. Mm-hmm. I, I think she... Um, it's definitely a very, very modern interpretation, for sure. Um, and it, it, it's. I, I completely disagree with her interpretation here of this of this moment. But she does point out some really, really important things, which is that Odysseus told Telemachus to kill them with a sword, and instead mm-hmm. yeah. he hangs them. Right. Yeah, I was just so going to mention that. That is. I mean, 
that's a significant detail and worth exploring. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he kill them with swords? And uh, why does he hang them instead? And he says it's because he refuses to grant them a clean death. Um, And then there's also the issue of... um, maybe Odysseus wasn't completely thinking through it because he just cleaned the house. And then if he Telemachus kills him with swords, it just gets blood everywhere. So maybe this was like a thoughtful detail on Telemachus's part. So there's, um, yeah, there's, I mean, it's a complex scene for sure. And it doesn't have the same satisfying, uh, kind of, moment of of climax that the killing of the suitors has this is troubling and it's complex even within its cultural context it isn't black and white i was struck by how it feel you know you have this big battle and they kind of they fight each other in battle right and you know even if they they kind of have the suitors kind of pinned down or whatever but the, the suitors throw spears back they kind of they grab some armor they they get a chance to defend themselves sort of and then it's over, but then it keeps going. And the ther- Melanthius and the servant girls, they don't have a chance to defend themselves, right? They're kind of pulled out, begging for mercy, and they're forced to clean everything up, and then they're, then they're hung. And there is a distinct difference between the way they go about that. You know, there's a sort of, there is a sort of justice at play in, with the suitors because it, at least they get, it's an actual fight, right? It's a fair fight. They get a chance to sort of, I mean, even if they have a goddess on, Odysseus has a goddess on his side, the suitors at least get a chance to, you know, put up something of a defense. But that's not true of Melanthius or or the the servant girls. And that's a distinct difference, I think. It is a distinct difference. And keeping in mind that they also had the chance over the last 20 years to be faithful to their master and they consistently chose to be gross. So now the other complex thing about the servant girls though which i i find like i said i find the melanthius episode more distasteful because they torture him to death Mm -hmm. um but we're definitely trained by homer to hate this guy in the story he has no redeeming qualities at all um so it, it it says more about the perpetrators in this in this scenario than it does about whether or not Melanthius could have truly repented. It's very clear he wouldn't have, right? He's just a gross guy, unredeemable. Um, So he deserved to die, but does he deserve, I mean, but what does it say about Odysseus that his command is that he be tortured to death, whereas the suitors just get a clean, quick death, relatively painless for most of them. They're just killed. He's the only, he's, tortured to death and then in a sense so are the servant girls and there's there's a significant line in which and i did look up the multiple multiple translations on this and it does it is a sense of violent sexual act in which odysseus acknowledges the servant girls were raped by the suitors so there's did they even did these servant girls who betrayed him did they have a choice you know they were used by these suitors but then your does say that they betrayed Odysseus and undermined their mistress, weren't obedient to her and conspired with the suitors against Penelope and Telemachus. And so there is some sense of moral ambiguity throughout these two threads of these disturbing elements. It isn't, like I said, black and white, even in their cultural context. I was thinking about the Eurycliabid because on the one hand, 
as you said, the book is the the narrate the narration, or I guess the is the one that says the that that the servant girls were raped, right? It's not yeah. a character, right? But then Euryclea as a character is the one. No, Odysseus that, says it. I think. I think Odysseus says okay. to the suitors, "You oh, yeah. plundered my home, drank my wine, raped my servant girls, wooed my wife." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was wondering if there's to some degree that there's a Euryclea presents it in an extreme way yeah, out of her can own you trust her yeah. out of her own anger. You know, not right. not necessarily unjust anger, but um, Tim, you're you're uh, see looking out the window, thinking it's your turn to talk now. So. <laughs> I was just no. I, I this is the most troubling mm-hmm. part of the whole book for me. I don't know that I have anything more to say. Okay, so does the fact that it's troubling make you think about the book or Odysseus say or Telemachus or whatever differently every time you come across this, and then later on you have to put it out of your head to sort of maintain you a way of thinking about Odysseus that has been passed on for generations as the sort of heroic character. I mean, does it make you think about him differently? It doesn't make me think different. It makes me think a little bit differently about Telemachus. Um, it, boy, it just does seem so excessive. Again, it's so hard. I mean, Close Reads is a complicated podcast because we are constantly kind of trafficking back and forth between sort of these different life worlds, our life world and their life world, you know. I think you're describing and, reading. It is, but, but but when we read something that's closer to the 21st century, the the difference between the life worlds is not as pronounced as it is here. It's just Homer's world is so profoundly different. So I, I the 21st century me is like, yeah, Telemachus, this is so excessive. It's just not right. And I feel like I don't know enough about the Homeric world that I, it's just hard for me to imagine how this would be considered justifiable. So for that reason, I'm like, Telemachus falls in my estimation. Odysseus is a little bit of another story, um, partly because Odysseus is just, he's a wild man. You know, he's just, he just does what he wants to do. And he lies and he, I don't know that he betrays, but he, his code is chiefly to himself. And it, that, that code that has an allegiance to himself kind of overlaps with a pious reverence for the gods in certain places. Um, but in a lot of ways, Odysseus, like I said, he's the honey badger. So it doesn't <laughs> surprise me that he is kind of party to this, this sort of hijinks. In her notes, which Heidi referenced, there's a, um, you know, at the, let's see, 432, it says, call the women who made those treasonous plots while I was gone. Yes. And um, <clears throat> she notes in her note, she notes in her notes, she notes that the Greek verb, mekon, um, does it see mecha nunto I mean it's plotted but it has implications of cunning strategy reminiscent of Odysseus himself and that word suggests these girls were deliberately hoping to work against their master a yes. suggestion that goes well beyond Odysseus's evidence um, according to Emily Wilson and she says that she uses the word treasonous um, for a word that can suggest lack of shame 
as well as other kinds of dangerous or inappropriate behavior, including perhaps suggesting sexual shamelessness, but not limited to that. So that's, that's really interesting given that nine lines before she mentions that the original Greek word which she uses or which she translated as slavery could also suggest the sexual slavery and that the line could be interpreted to mean um, that they were trying to resist the advances made by the suitors. Right. So it's really Wilson, interesting that in nine yeah. lines there, you know, go ahead. Well, Wilson is not sympathetic to Odysseus. You see that time and time again, given the opportunity to uh, translate a word uh positively or negatively towards either Telemachus or Odysseus almost all the time she's going to do it negatively and she well, says that in her introduction like she she says i am creating a translation that will tell another side of this story and and so she has a very very modern postmodern academic perspective on the odyssey this uh, and so that's you can take some of what she says for knowing that that's what she'll, how she'll choose to translate it. Um, well, it's, it, it's funny because it just goes back to the, the first line of the whole book. She says, complicated man, right? He's a complicated man. And, I, you know, I think what she's after is that there's, she's trying to pursue the gray areas in the story. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think she has... A, I personally don't read the choices that she makes as um, negative in the way that you're... In, suggesting i i read her to be pursuing the gray area that 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 many translators don't don't pursue that you know right. for given, generations yeah, he's considered this sort of yeah but he's not though david like he's for most of christendom he was he he was put in the eighth circle of hell so this the idea of like the the modern translators like coming up well, with here, some kind of new interpretation of but Odysseus explain and, the eighth circle of hell thing for people who don't know what, what you mean by that. Right. We talked about a couple of weeks ago that he, that Dante in um, in the high middle ages, when he constructed the nine circles of hell, he put Odysseus in the eighth circle because Odysseus in, in the circle of the fraudulent, because he had deceived his traveling companions um, in not telling them that Scylla about the dilemma between Scylla and Charybdis and Odysseus deliberately chooses the path of Scylla knowing that two of his men are going to die uh, because if he took the Charybdis path, as Circe had told him, all of everybody would die. And so well, how does that Cer- not make him, how does that mean that he's not c- considered a gray area? That paints him as negative. It, well, it paints him as, as pragmatic, right? He either loses everybody or loses two. So... He sacrifices the two to save. That's the nature the rest of complicated. Is that? I agree that he's complicated. That's that's. But is it worth sending him to hell over? Is well, isn't that I think kind of the question. So the point you, that I was making was that this the modern idea that Odysseus, for all of since the Odyssey, has been held up as a great hero until these people suddenly figured out that he was sexist in, you know, the 20th century. But Dante himself is suggesting the complicated. That's a bit, that's like a pre-modern thing. That's my entire point, David, is that this, that he's always been known to be complicated. And so it isn't, but that when Emily Wilson makes these translation choices, she doesn't do it in a complicated way. She does it in a negative way every time. 
I think it's, there's a lot of, that has a lot to do with the way you think about the words that she's using though. Right. Well, and the point about the sexual slavery, I mean, all of that, this is a troubling incident. So if you were to take Odysseus's side on it, it would be the side of the suitors have completely corrupted my kingdom. And as a good leader, I have to cleanse it. Mm -hmm. So that is the argument for Odysseus in this case. I don't think you can make the the argument that it's okay to torture people to death. So that's why the Melanthius one is the most troubling one for me. Well, except that the argument is that the degree of sin should the degree of punishment should correspond to the degree of the sin. Right. That's the case to be made. Melanthius would be worse than the suitors. And my assumption is that we're supposed to read it as Melanthius is worse than the slave girls who are worse than the suitors in terms of the the actual choices that they're making. Right. Because they were treasonous against their master. And thus, there's an increasing degree of uh, severity to the punishments. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. I I think that that's true. But that, that would probably be the case for what he does in these two troubling incidences. Okay. If, if that is the case, why then are they worse than the suitors? Right. That's my question too. Well, I think that's Emily Wilson's question. I mean, I think that's at the root of, even if she wouldn't express it that way, that seems to be at the root of what her, her, her trouble with the, how to, how to interpret the scene as a translator is. Okay. My hunch, and I think this is, like to harken back to Dante in the, in the very pit of hell are three people in Dante's world. Now, again, like Dante's writing in 1300 Homer's writing, what would we say? Like 11 to 700 BC, something like that. Um, So they're separated a huge amount of time, but in Dante's world, the three people that are in hell are Judas, Cassius, and Brutus, and they're the three betrayers. Right. Um, like Satan is actually like chewing on their bodies. That's how low, how little Dante thinks of them. And I wonder if something about it's the loyalty of being part of a household and, and violating that loyalty. Is that what makes the servant girls worse than the suitors? Because the suitors weren't ever loyal to Odysseus's home. They were outsiders, but the servant girls, they were part of it. Right. Is that, can we say that's a plausible explanation for why, if they are in fact like treated worse or viewed, viewed as being worse than the suitors, could that be the reason why? Right. I think absolutely that's the reason why. In the introduction, Emily Wilson makes the point that that all Odysseus that Odysseus and Telemachus are trying to subjugate all the women of their household, including Penelope. And so because of that, the servant girls, whether they were abused sexually or not, have to die because they have united themselves with the enemy, whether they were forced or not. The whole point is to get rid of all the unclean women in the house. I don't see that in the text at all. I see the emphasis on the treasonous nature of the choices of these young women, that there were 50 of them and 12 of them, Eurycleia says, were treasonous, that plotted with the suitors against Penelope and Odysseus. 
And the plot Heidi. was to kill Telemachus. That's the plot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is, so then Odysseus has to cleanse that. So how he goes about that, we find troubling, but I do not see in the text that there's any sense of, we have to subjugate the women of our household and, and that's, that's our goal here. Heidi, would Emily Wilson maybe say back to you, well, you don't see it in the text because it doesn't need to be stated. That yeah, was part assumed. of the world. That was yes. part of the world that they lived in. Yes, that's exactly what she'd say. So that's and yeah. that's that's the whole modern argument against the Odyssey. The claim that the Odyssey is inherently sexist is because of that. And Odysseus gets to sleep with the goddesses, and he never has to pay any consequences. And he gets to come home and kill all the women, and then and Penelope well, has I mean, to go to her room. It depends on how you define the word. <laughs> Right. And, and Penelope has to go to her room and listen to Telemachus and, and, and that that's like this systematic uh, subjugation of femininity throughout the Odyssey. And Penelope is the only one who fights against that. That's the feminist um, kind of interpretation of, of the Odyssey. So, and, and to David's point, Every generation has judged this story according to its own standards. But what we do on Close Reads is meet it on its own terms. Since when? Since when did we ever do that? I never said that. (laughs) That's what I do on Close Reads. (laughs) Um, Maybe we. Maybe maybe I'm in the royal we. (laughs) (laughs) But Heidi, I want to say to you, I, I would think based on what I know about you, I would think that in some ways you w- I'm actually going to try to speak in your voice for a second. This is what, I, this is what I think might be going on internally. And I, and I want to hear you obviously be like, yeah, Tim, that's crazy. <laughs> that's not what I think. I think I, I bet there's two things going on for you, Heidi. Like part of you is not um, blind to the fact that growing, that living as a woman in Homer's time was, not an experience that you would exchange for like contemporary experience. Absolutely true. Right. But I think there's another thing going on inside of you, which is you love this book. It stood the test of time for good reasons. And there's, I wonder if there's part of you that wants to protect the text from being something other than it is just to kind of like, suit a modern sensibility. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's everything you said is true. Okay. And okay. so to be troubled by this, by what's going on in book 21, it, it you have to be troubled by this. You must, or 22, excuse yeah. me, you must, but be troubled for the reasons that are there, not the reasons right. we want to be there. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I mean, we haven't said it this way yet. I haven't gotten around to this yet. But to me, whether if you take out sort of a modern sensibility about it, the reason that the book is troubling and would have been, or these scenes is troubling and would have been troubling to people then, I believe, is the, is the very fact that in order to cleanse or purify or scour or whatever word you want to use to translate that, to translate that word, that in order to do that, this is what has to happen. The fact that that is the fact that it is justice within that framework is inherently what is troubling about it. Right. Yeah. It would have been inherently troubling, even if it wasn't ability, even if they didn't have the ability to state it as such to the people who Homer was telling the story to. And that's why I believe this, the book ends with the epilogue. 
um, there's a very, there's like, there's a party going on, on the other side of this wall. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it. Um, I don't know what I was saying. I got distracted by all the David, noise. You said, you said that's the reason for the epilogue. Well, the, I, can you go, for- I mean, I kind of view, you know, there's a sort of, um, <laughs> modern TV, uh, storytelling form that is very imitative of, of, um, of the Odyssey where the, you know, in the penultimate episode, you see this like in the wire or the Sopranos or almost any TV show ever where in the, um, pen up penultimate episode of a season or a series, you get the sort of climactic drama. And then the final episode is actually uh, sort of the fallout. And that fallout yeah. essentially acts as an epilogue that tells you what the world is going to be like after the sort of cathartic action has, has taken place. And so I think that what happens is when this book ends, when 22 ends, Things have been, uh, things have not been restored yet. Right. The the cathartic action has taken place, but within that cathartic action is a sort of troubling underbelly. It sort of inherently has to be because of the nature of the cathartic action that led to some yeah. resolution, and thus yeah. what the the sort of reunion of Penelope and Odysseus and the restoration of the kingdom is what is what sort of, you know, suggests moving forward that there is some chance of this not happening again. Right. It's not a static ending, you know, Uh, Athena and Zeus uh, make sure that that there's no stasis at the end of this book. Um, I, some people would argue anyway. Right. No, I think that's true. And I think it also sets up, you know, after we have this this big moment of the suitors that is so satisfying, and then and then there's these troubling incidents, and then it goes into the next book, which is which doesn't have the same kind of satisfying moment that we were hoping for. There's there's still some obstacles for Odysseus to go through um, in order to get his happy ending. So I'm wondering. You know, he is a complicated man, the man of many ways. So he isn't just a straightforward hero. And that's very, very clear throughout this book. Um, and for different reasons in different generations, he's judged harshly or let off the hook when he should be more judged for whatever reason. Um, but it is a mirror into our own society for sure. Well, that's one of the reasons that I think that doesn't get talked enough. Mm-hmm of one of the things about great books that doesn't get talked enough about, because it's not just that every generation continues to tell a story or approve of it. It's that the book itself is capable of showing us things about ourselves. Yes. You know, great books last not solely because we can look at them and say, well, that's been great and it's going to continue to be great, but it's because it gives us wisdom for how we live now. Right. You know, the, those things go hand in hand and the, and the Odyssey, you know, can do that. Even that, you know, great books are interpretable in any age. Right. I've done this, um, David and Heidi, you both know, I've done this uh, for Circe conferences, a reading of a short story called The Bridge by Edwin Friedman. And it's a troubling story. And um, it's meant to be troubling. It's meant to really kind of like poke and prod at the reader. And I've done it a couple of times. I've done it several times. Um, but I remember in one context, there were a couple of people who were so troubled by it that they wanted to change it. 
they wanted to add on to the story things that weren't there. And it's like, it's the only forbidden thing to do kind of when, when discussing that story is to change it because I think this is to both of your points. Great works are sometimes intended to be troubling. And sometimes like, I think these episodes that we're discussing, I don't know that they're intended to trouble. They weren't intended to trouble its first readers, but they trouble us greatly now. And to kind of just wash them away because they're so troubling, I think does, does great harm as a reader. It kind of lets you off the hook and it makes you less inclined to kind of like have a hard look at like former cultures in our present culture. I'm glad you're mentioning this actually, because I was thinking, I was thinking about this recently with a different book, maybe Shakespeare. I can't remember what, but I was thinking about how, like, what does it mean to look at a book on its own terms? Right. Like we can, we can look at a book from a different era and look at it. You know, I think part of, part of, well, let me see if I can think about how to express this because I haven't had to do that yet. (laughs) I think that, what you're talking about, about not changing things, like preserving books for what they are, allowing them to be what they are, is the key part of that. We can still look at it and experience it. In fact, we must experience it through our own eyes. But we, you know, we, can, observe, we can observe what's there and then ask questions about it from our own perspective without doing damage to the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even that doesn't. We don't have to say this is what the author meant or this is what the book is intended to do. But we can still say this is what this book is going to do to us. And as long as we're not changing it, right? We can. Or, or let me yeah. let me put it this way: we can observe what a book does to our culture, what a book does to ourselves, right? Right. Do, I mean, Heidi, what do you saying? What do you, do? You... Yeah, it's such a complicated. I've. And we have five minutes to resolve said, this. It's, I know it's <laughs> right. <laughs> It's so hard to put into words that concept of meeting a book on its own terms. Because as Tim pointed out, in no way would I... like To be a servant girl in the household of a king um, could be a horrifyingly traumatic experience. and Or it could be a good life. There's just like in every generation, um, justice and injustice plague every level of society. And great books shed light on that for that particular cultural moment that those people live in. And then as you're pointing out, they also do that in our generation, because we can we we hold them up next to each other. That's why C.S. Lewis said on the reading of old books in the introduction to Athanasius is on the incarnation. He says you should read more old books than new books because those old books become they they are like a mirror to our own time, and we can look into those old books and see the differences, and then we can rightly order our own judgments of our own time, seeing how different they are from the old ones. Also comparing those to the standard of holiness within the Christian ethic. So when we say things like, you can't judge Odysseus by the Christian ethic, in some sense, I'm meaning in order to interpret the text. Mm -hmm. But then on another level, that's the only job we have, right? And that's Mm -hmm. why it's so complicated to talk about. Because the whole point is, if we do have the revelation of God, we do have the truth, then 
then that should be the lens through which we we pro- rightly order judgments on everything, including these books we read. Did you just mention Athanasius? Because this is kind of his point. Yeah. Yes, it is his point. This is and why he says young men should read at Homer. Right. Right. I mean, this is so, not obviously it's, it's 2,000 years old. Right. <laughs> it's very complicated to say um, and, and to put into words, which is why it's a conversation that we have over the ages, not just like a neat little statement that we can make with a bow at the end of a podcast, right? This is a co- an ongoing conversation that, um, that we continue to be formed by. I, I just don't think that... I don't think for us to make an observation about what a book is doing to us or causing us to feel, if we, what we're doing then is we're observing how a book is working on us. We're not necessarily sending a judgment of a book when we observe the things that it does to us. Because when we, do, when we observe that, that can help us to draw back and then, observe, and then interpret it correctly. Of course, right. Because you're getting, really you, can well get, you, can get, you can get the notions or you can get the, the confusions and all the other things that are, that are coming from you out of the way. You can't do that if you haven't observed what those things are and identified them and perhaps even named them. Right. You know, then, they become, then they become the thing that they get in the way of the interpretation. Um, and that's why I think you, you know, being able to recognize them and it, that's not doing harm to a book. Um, it's, it's allowing you to understand yourself better so you can then interpret the it, do the act of interpreting it on, uh, in its own in its own way. That's why I think it's important to be to read widely too, because it tells you about yourself. Absolutely, that's true, David. I, I think maybe another way of saying all this is like, it's two things are really important. First, we have to recognize that like every book we read is lodged in a part of history, and that part is kind of easy. It's easy to recognize Homer came from a certain era in history. The harder part is to recognize we also are from a certain part of history. And like, if you just want to scrutinize the one without scrutinizing the other, if you just want to scrutinize the historical era of Homer, but without scrutinizing kind of like the historical era of yourself, then like the reading, the reading process is going to be it's going to be a poor reading process. Both of those are required. There's a big difference in saying, what can this book tell me about me and my life and the age that I live in? And uh, then there's a big difference between that and saying, this is what my age can make this book be. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I think, is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 Um, well, do you guys want to offer any final thoughts? I've said enough for the last 20 minutes, so I'll, I'll shut up. But either of you final thoughts before we wrap this up and then next week talk about the, the uh, final two books? No, I don't. I, I don't. Heidi? No, now I'm thinking about all the things <laughs> we just talked about. So this was such a good conversation today. Yeah. Just go in there on the, on the thread and ask questions under a, under a secret That's Facebook right. account. We have, we have today... The muse has moved us to talk about a complicated man. The Odyssey has done its work. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, next week we will discuss the final two books. We will talk about the reunion between Penelope and Odysseus and the setting of the kingdom aright and more interference from the gods. And then after that, next week we will talk about your, well, we will answer. Well, we might answer. We will discuss your questions. Uh, So make sure you post your questions on the Facebook page on on that thread there or by emailing them to us at close reads podcast at gmail.com don't forget you can follow along on instagram or twitter at close reads pods 
And of course, don't forget about the bonus episodes, which you can get access to along with that sweet show swag at patreon.com slash close reads. <laughs> I was saying it. it's slow and it almost just ripped my tongue out of my mouth. You definitely nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Heidi. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for... You know what I need to do is I need to come up with like Homer, Homeric like epithets for each of you when we're signing off on logging on and signing I off on the show. I love this idea so, so much. Uh, for the uh, lion-like Tim McIntosh and uh, <laughs> I like that. the always encouraging Heidi White. <laughs> I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week here on Close Reads. Talk to you soon. Oh, happy reading too. I forgot to say that. I gotta say that. <laughs>